Okay, let me hit record on my side, and I've got you. And you sound great, by the way. Um, Kalpana, Jane, it is always a pleasure to have you joining. Thank you so much for making time on this rainy morning. I am talking to you from your home, I believe, in Boston. That is correct, Amberine. Always a pleasure to talk to you as well. You bring so much of depth to every issue. Yes, I am in Cambridge, the Kremlin on the Charles, may I dare say. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world, our politics, and the events that are unfolding. Friends, whether you see it or not, beliefs are always part of the story. That assumes, of course, you live in a place where the story can be told fully. It's a point not lost on award-winning religion journalist and author Kalpana Jain. She was born and raised in India, where she rose the ranks in the newsroom to become an award-winning investigative journalist. In fact, her reporting exposed inequities in the public health system, leading to the resignation of the Minister of Health. But these days, she's focused on a different beat, religion. But she brings that ever-important investigative lens— Kalpana came to the United States as a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, where she earned advanced degrees in journalism and religion. Today, she is the senior ethics and religion editor at The Conversation U.S. and is a senior journalist. Her work has won national press awards and is unflinching in tackling, well, difficult and complicated subjects, like the rise of religious ethno-nationalism in India how it impacts religious minorities, and what resilience in a multi-faith India looks like today. We are talking this week in advance of India hosting the 18th annual G20 conference in New Delhi. The country is preparing, like many do for the Olympics. There's the planting of trees, building of gathering halls, and frankly, giving the city a makeover well, that is the trip from the airport to the gathering complex, acres of trees have been planted. At events like these, journalists play an important role. They're often interrogating the promises being told by government officials, and they're taking a closer look at the spending and the priorities. They're fact-checking and giving that information to the public, which is the way the public then holds leaders accountable. That's why in a healthy democracy... Freedom of the press is an important indicator of the health of the democracy. But in India, that kind of investigative reporting is getting much harder. Out of 180 countries, the World Press Freedom Index puts India at 161. That's near the bottom. And that's something that deeply concerns Kalpana Jain. We begin our conversation in which she revisits an event that many of us may have missed, but it was a spectacular event, particularly for Indians who know that Prime Minister Narendra Modi is not a fan of press conferences. In fact, in nine years, he hasn't held one. This summer, Prime Minister Narendra Modi 
who was, just as a reminder to listeners, elected in 2014, made quite a trip to the United States. This was not his first, but boy, it was a gala. I mean, there was a state dinner. It was the talk of the town in Washington, D.C. And then there was uh, a lot of energy and excitement in the diaspora community of Indian Americans around the country. One particular event stood out for me. Uh, It was a joint press conference with President uh, Biden, and that was back on June 22nd. Mr. Prime Minister, India has long prided itself as the world's largest democracy, but there are many human rights groups who say that your government has discriminated against religious minorities and sought to silence its critics. As you stand here in the East Room of the White House, where so many world leaders have made commitments to protecting democracy, what steps are you and your government willing to take to improve the rights of Muslims and other minorities in your country and to uphold free speech? That's White House correspondent from the Wall Street Journal, Sabrina Siddiqui. I'm actually really surprised that people say so. And so, people don't say it. Indeed, India is a democracy. India and America, both countries, democracy is in our DNA. Democracy is our spirit. Democracy runs in our veins. We live democracy. And when I say deliver, this is regardless of caste, creed, religion, There's absolutely no space for discrimination. And when you talk of democracy, if there are no human values and there is no humanity, there are no human rights, then it's not a democracy. When you say democracy, and you accept democracy, and when we live democracy, then there is absolutely no space for discrimination. Kalpani, you watched that press conference. Why was that question significant? And what happened after she asked it? Yeah, that's a great question, Ambreen. And that allows us to dig deeper into what's going on in India at this point of time and what's going on with the media. And, um, you know, and why Prime Minister Modi is really, you know, getting this kind of support that he's getting. So let's start with the question first. So, Prime Minister Modi, he's never addressed a press conference in India. So let's get that out first. And in the U.S., apparently, at the urging of President Biden, but I'm not so sure about that, but apparently so, he was urged to participate in a press conference. And that question came from Sabrina Siddiqui, who happens to be a Muslim from the Wall Street Journal. And she asked about allegations of discrimination against religious minorities in India and what steps are being taken to address those, a very legitimate question in current times. Now, Modi said, and I watched that clip several times, he said he was, quote-unquote, surprised over the alleged claims. And then he responded by saying, in India's democratic values, there is absolutely no discrimination, neither on the basis of caste, or age or any kind of geographic location. I have to be honest, and may I say that this seemed like, you know, he was expecting this question and and the script seemed to be very well prepared because then he Mm. he really 
you know, talked about democracy in India and he was very forceful and he said in Hindi, democracy is in our DNA, democracy is our spirit, democracy runs in our veins. We live democracy. Now, this is the kind of response that people who admire and appreciate Modi and, and Indians in general would love this kind of response because, you know, you also have to situate Modi in a post-colonial country context where there's, you know, a lot of people have wanted a pushback to the West, an assertion of India, an assertion of identity, which has been missing for a long time. Sure. And in Modi, they see that as someone standing up to the West. I think we saw that emerge, you know, at the time when, let's say, I'm really going back historically, and you can imagine this as an editor at the conversation, I, you know, um, I'm learning from so many scholars, but also my own degrees in theology. So it's, you know, it's really a reminder of the time when the Muslim Brotherhood starts to come in, you know, creation of Pakistan, these, you know, Islamic forces come in, which are like a pushback to the Western forces. I see some of that happening in India at this point of time. So this kind of a response from Modi is loved by many in India and, you know, the Indian media and, you know, television specifically at this point of time. And, you know, that sort of just supporting Modi, the channels are supporting Modi. And again, you know, it's again, it's, you need to go into why this is happening. You know, much of yeah, the, I, yeah. I, I want to jump in for a second. And I appreciate you referencing that historical context. You know, and as you're talking, you're also reminding me of like this, the ethos, that nationalism that's been growing. And it's that resistance to colonialism. I, I really appreciate you referencing that. And it's also bringing to mind the galvanizing of voices around, for example, let's get the crown jewel, you know, after the loss of Queen Elizabeth, the renewed conversation about uh, cultural appropriation and the theft of cultural artifacts and that jewel. And it seemed to be this, at least from my vantage point, listening and also just my own conversations with folks who have family back in India or in South Asia, talking about this feeling of strength, talking about this feeling of it's time to address kind of historical wrongs. And so when you reference that history, you know, 75 years ago, as the country was, you know, finding its voice, you're connecting his response, this idea of democracy to that period. Is that what I'm hearing you say? So, you know, it's so muddled at this point of time. Modi is a strong man and he's playing into a lot of emotions at this time. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is he is pushing a certain kind of patriotism, nationalism. And he's doing it in a way that, you know, relates with people. So, I mean, I increasingly am finding that even my friends, my family, it's very hard to have a conversation now because, you know, just Modi's finding so much support with what he's yeah. doing. 
And well, and it's yeah. interesting. It's interesting you say that. I want to just pause there for listeners to understand a little bit of the history. Explain for a moment, just for those who are not connected to the region or may not be following his meteoric rise or where he was before he became prime minister. Could you just give a small kind of snapshot of why this is significant, how you see his brand, his supporters kind of focusing on this aspect of who he has become. It's almost as if the story of where he came from has been muted. Yes. So he was the chief minister of Gujarat. That's a Western state in UP that had one of the worst communal rights that we've seen in India. Um, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, just for context, uh, Amberin, I grew up in a city called Merit in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. And I am familiar with communal writing. We used to have communal rights pretty much every year when I was a kid. Mm. And at the end of it, I also remember people used to get together again um, and say it was outsiders who came in. It wasn't us. And peace used to be restored. What happened in Gujarat was a another scale you know just it it was you know what what many have called was a program um and muslims were massacred in that so that's that's a state that modi has ruled in gujarat and as a prime minister of the country he's often portrayed himself as coming from the masses as a chaiwala as he calls himself a tea seller and you know for a long time we've had very elitist, uh, Western-educated um, leadership in the country, let's say, whether it was mm-hmm. uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, you know, educated, I think at Eton, but, you know, Western-educated. Again, Manmohan Singh, you know, these were all um, very elitist, Western-educated um, prime ministers and other leadership. Now comes and we could call them, we could call them Anglophiles. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I think with, we can, yeah. And uh, the Actually, I mean, English media that I've been a part of is also seen in a way, you know, a reflection of that elitism. And then comes Modi, who is saying, I didn't even get educated. I'm a man like you. I mean, but he does mm. belong to what's called the Rashtriya Swamsevatsan, the RSS. And that is a political party. That is not, not a party, but... You know, many will call it a Hindu nationalist organization, but that's behind the BJP. Now, just to complicate things a little bit, I also know people who joined the RSS just because it's, you know, they thought it's a cultural organization where they learn Mm -hmm. about Hinduism. But, uh, you know, RSS can be a lot of other things in instigating people, in sort of spreading um, or contributing to violence. My conversation with Kalpana Jain, the Senior Ethics and Religion Editor at The Conversation U.S., continues after this short break. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska. 
and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, I'm talking with award-winning journalist Kalpana Jain. She's an investigative reporter in India. Today, she's the senior ethics and religion editor at The Conversation U.S. She's been writing about the rise of Hindu nationalism and its impact on press freedom. Before the break, we were starting to talk about the RSS. Now, that's a right-wing organization that has many functions, but its focus is advancing Hindu nationalism. The organization was started back in the 1920s, before India gained its independence. Today, the group is closely tied to Prime Minister Modi. After all, he was elected by the political party associated with the RSS. They're known as the BJP. The 100-year-old RSS has morphed. It's become a cultural force, and it's working to reshape India and her politics. 75 years ago, when India won its freedom from British rule, it was established as a pluralistic democracy based on secular principles. During the Modi and BJP leadership regime, a series of laws and policies have been criticized, advancing an agenda that many describe as nationalistic that harm religious minorities. While 80% of the country identifies as Hindu, as Kalpana points out, that does not convey the diversity of beliefs among Hindus, let alone the reality of millions of Muslims who represent 15% of the country, along with millions of Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists, Jains, and many more. Let's get back to the conversation. Originally, you know, King RSS came into being in the 1920s, and that's the start of Hindu nationalism and Hindutva. And it's an ethnic identity that they want to create. It's like all those who live in India is Hindus in a very ethnic sense. That's what I hear from scholars. Of you know, you you will observe a certain culturally, you will be Hindus. So India is a country for Hindus, and that is what is being promoted. And Modi is a part of this organization and this thinking. And in fact, that Gujarat, the, the violence in Gujarat that you mentioned, um, the United States, in fact, denied uh, current Prime Minister Narendra Modi a visa because of the severe violations of religious freedom. I mean, he was banned from entering this country for nearly a decade. That is true. Under Bush. And now he is 
you know, welcomed with, with state dinners. Yes. And I think we also need to clarify because it wouldn't be accurate that the Supreme Court cleared Modi of any charges under the, um, you know, what happened after Gujarat. Um, BBC did a recent documentary. Um, I don't know if you're aware of that. That was this summer. Absolutely. We haven't talked about it on the show, but if you wouldn't mind, talk for a second about what was so controversial about that documentary. Well, BBC interviewed a lot of people and uh, BBC, you know, the documentary kind of says that uh, I haven't watched it because it's not available um, for watch. It's been banned. Um, and it implicates uh, Narendra Modi for the, you know, in the Gujarat riots. Um, but after that, uh, you know, BBC was given a notice. Uh, the offices of BBC were raided. It's, um, and um, uh, channels who are favoring Modi, they did, um, they did a program around that. Too, you know, mm. just sort of accusing BBC of and and raising and raising questions raising about questions. Yeah. the integrity of the documentary. That's I think right. It's called India. I think it's called India: The Modi Question, and it's an investigative series that looks into those allegations and asks the question about his uh, potential role and the context in which he was leading in Gujarat at that time. Yes. Yes, I think you've summed it up very well. And following, um, you know, even very recently, and when I was in India, there was a program done on one of the television shows, which basically the headline was, BBC gets notice over PM Modi documentary, a lesson for Western media. So you see where that Mm. is going. Let's talk about that. Press freedom in India. I mean, you're just you're describing the BBC, which is a large media operation as well. I mean, they it's not only the news and the radio shows that we may hear here in the United States, especially public radio listeners, but they also produce documentaries and have different radio channels um, and uh, serve a global audience. When they produced this documentary and it generated controversy, the raid on those offices in India raised a, a significant question, I think, at least it did for me, about press freedom. What is press freedom? look like for reporters in India today? I know you've been traveling back and forth. You were a reporter in India. Kalpana, what what is your take on press freedom today? It's really hard at this point of time, Ambarine. It's uh, it's so hard for reporters to be able to just do their job. You know, Mm. when the farmers protest happened, and I forget which year was it, but I think about two years ago where um, farmers were... the Punjabi farmers yes. in in the in the north, yes, yes, and uh, were protesting. I think like a uh, policy that would have impacted their ability to earn a living, and it was also seen as an attack on the Sikh community because so many Sikh um, Indians are farmers, and it would became like a, a point of solidarity. I mean, I remember talking with uh, Simranjit Singh and others about. What are the lessons from the farmer protest and the civil disobedience that took place in India at that time? Right. And, and you know, reporters were arrested under colonial era laws, which are like the sedition laws that still exist in India, just for doing their job well, and reporting. 
So what are, what are you talking about there? For Americans who were, it, are not going to be familiar with that, what are the sedition laws uh, for report, that, that can impact reporters in India? So sedition under the British, you know, under the colonial regime, sedition was that you put out any speech or your speech inciting people to rebel against the government and you can be put in jail. Um, mm. It's like subversion of the constitution, incitement of, you know, basically discontent, um, insurrection. So you can be put in jail for that. But reporters are being arrested for that. It's like you can't do your simple job of reporting. And that's all that reporters were doing at that point of time. And they were arrested under sedition laws. And sedition laws are being used. I mean, it's not like the party before Modi, Congress did not use it. But the way Modi is going after reporters, or, you know, I can't even say Modi, but this government is going after reporters. We haven't seen that, I think. Mm. And as you describe, you know, you describe sedition laws, it just raises for me the larger question also of the history of press freedom in India. I mean, which the country just celebrated 75 years, its 75th anniversary of independence uh, from British rule. But the, the, the press itself and press freedom takes its it's it's a concept that is a legacy in some ways of that colonial rule. Would that be an accurate way of describing it? Yeah, I mean, you know, press really in India came about on its own um, as, as you know, fighting the colonial rules. So, you know, Gandhi was bringing out, I think, like three newspapers or three publications. So press became a part of that struggle and fight against the colonial rule. And before that, it was really the British media you know, serving the British in India. So that's how press in India really started. And after independence, laws were put into place. Um, But unlike the US, where, you know, the First Amendment guarantees complete freedom to the press, in the Indian Constitution, press rights are part of the free speech guarantees. So that means that, you know, the government can put reasonable restrictions on those rights and indeed it has put reasonable restrictions on the on the rights of press freedom you know and the, the rights of of the press to be able to report on what's happening particularly to minority groups within the country you know india is not a monolith it's an incredibly diverse nation with so many different ethnicities and languages and cultures the what is the what is the demand or what is the expectation of um, everyday Indians when it comes to the media? Do they look to the media the way many do in the United States with suspicion? Do they trust the media? Like, what's the perception of the media in India today? It's changed so much, Ambreen. I'm glad you asked that question. So, you know, when I was reporting in India, media was so highly valued that if you went to a, a village, the village headman would be sitting with a newspaper and reading it to, you know, the people around him. Uh, they would gather in the evening where the, where the headman would read the newspaper. And the, and the word printed in the newspaper was like the word of the God. It couldn't be challenged. These mm. days, it is so different. 
and there is this constant 24/7 you know very fox like television channels that are um basically promoting hate speech in fact the supreme court came down and said hate hate speech uh, you know needs to be stopped because they are putting out facts and i mean not facts there, there are no facts i would you know if that's not an exaggeration but their version of facts which can lead to hate so and hate of which groups hate of 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 religious minorities. I mean, the the focus on religious minorities and the struggles of religious minorities in India is not a new story, but it seems as though in the last uh, nearly decade, the ability of the state to use laws to address or to rather target um, religious minorities as it relates to citizenship, as it relates to the ability to get married, as it relates to uh, access to housing and to jobs, like those systems. I mean, it's the, the one of the things that we hear a lot and talk a lot about in the United States is systemic racism. Yeah. When you're looking at the the context of India, how is the treatment of religious minorities, how has that changed through the legal system? We started this conversation off with you referencing Prime Minister Modi's quotation of democracy and freedom is in India's DNA. When you look at the legal frameworks that have been created or, or strengthened over the last decade, how does that statement that he made here in Washington, D.C., how does that match up with the legal realities that religious minorities face in India? So I wouldn't be able to comment a lot on the legal system because Supreme Court is independent and Supreme Court does come down. I mean, in recent mm. times, it allowed Rahul Gandhi back into the parliament. So there is a pushback, you know. That happens. But in other ways, let's talk about the systems in the media. So, for example, at this point of time, the you know much of the media, the legacy media, the powerful media is controlled by business houses and business houses that have very, very close relationships with Modi. And, you know, some of those businessmen uh, who are controlling these networks were part of Modi's entourage when he was here in the U.S. So that means that a certain kind of issues are covered or they are covered in certain ways, which reflects mm. a certain angle. Um, so, you know, then if you start to present a, a reality to people, which is not giving them the full picture, that's what people will understand is the story. And other stories are just going out of newspapers. You know, when when I was a reporter, our bread and butter stories used to be going out into the villages, covering Adivasi groups, indigenous groups, uh, covering, you know, the day-to-day affairs of how people are living, hospitals, you know, social issues. All that's completely gone. So now that really impacts um, the poor, the minorities, people who don't have enough resources, History books are being changed. You know, there's revisionist history. So I don't even know where to begin because now it will become systemic in its, you know, mm. in the way the whole system is being changed. 
Yeah, I mean, it's as you're describing it, it's these, uh, these incremental steps. It's as you're as I'm listening to you, I'm remembering back in 2014, when activists were concerned and trying to raise awareness about uh, the RSS and BJP's vision for India. They, it wasn't just about Modi. It was about a, a religious national political movement that had a very different vision for India. And I'm, I'm just listening to you, Kalpana, and I'm thinking about those conversations and realizing as I, as I, stand here that so many of those fears are being manifested in ways that most can't see because they're not being reported until folks like yourself and others take the risk to tell the story. Yeah, I mean, there are huge gaps in reporting at this point of time. And the thing is that there is self-censorship also at this time, because if you take yeah, the risk... Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. How are you feeling about even having this conversation? Do you have any hesitancy or concerns? Uh, shall I say it very honestly? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, visas yeah. are being revoked. You're not being allowed to even go back to your own country. Within the country, you could be put in jail. Your homes could be raided. It, there are fears which I've never had, you know, living and working in a democracy. But now there are fears. Scholars are fearful that they won't be able to do their work. Journalists are fearful. Organizations are fearful. And, you know, coming back to the systemic problem, at least with the media that I'm familiar with, they also depend on their revenue, the advertisement from the government. That's a big part of the revenue, or even from the business houses. So if they fall out with the government, that big chunk of money goes away. So how are they supposed to survive? That's why they also came in. Mm. You know, when you say business houses, that's uh, that's an expression that uh, is maybe not as common to American listeners. Mm. You're referring business houses are like corporate, corporate. media. Yeah. Yeah. Corporate. Yeah. yeah. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, my conversation with Kalpana Jain. She's a senior ethics and religion editor at The Conversation U.S. Let's get back to the conversation. You know, you referenced growing up and remembering communal violence, religious communal violence, ethnic communal violence. Why do you think that continues to be a button that political leadership pushes in India, given its very, very bloody history? Oh, it's so easy to divide people along those lines, right? Because we have a history. We have, so we have both kinds of histories and I've covered both kinds of stories. So on one hand, it's very fragile and it can be very inflammatory, the tensions between Hindus and Muslims. On the other hand, all these, you know, which I've covered, these centuries-old traditions of how they live together, have customs and cultures built together. Like, you know, for example, in Varanasi, which is one of my favorite cities in the way they live together with 30% Muslims in that city, despite being Modi's parliamentary constituency. And during Muharram, Muharram is the Muslim holiday that is practiced predominantly by the Shia yes, community. Yes. And they take a horse out during that procession. And the horse will not be allowed to move unless the Hindu custodian comes and blesses it. Mm. So there are so many. And that's just like one small one. 
There are so many. Yeah, of these it, it's those so yeah. stories, and those stories are a part of what I think gets overshadowed or is not necessarily remembered. And the reason yeah. I the reason I pause there is because, as you know, and listeners may know, like my family also comes from this region. I my maternal family line, my mother's family, I learned recently is Gujarati. Ah. I did not know that. Ah, my 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 maternal grandfather uh, came to left left India to be part of the formation of Pakistan, but I have a lot of relatives still in Gujarat. I don't know them. I haven't been in touch with them. They don't know me. But it's interesting because when I talk to my mother about her childhood and her memories, mm. those memories are rich with moments of friendship and sharing celebrations like Diwali and sharing Eid and sharing uh, Nowruz even with far- with their Farsi friends, the, the multicultural, multi-faith experience. And in fact, in my family, I would be remiss to say, you know, my mother uh, went to Catholic school in when she was growing up and so was taught by I. nuns. And, <laughs> and so for me, in my house, in my family's story, my, my paternal grandmother used to talk about her Hindu neighbors and her sick neighbors. She was Punjabi. And I, so for me growing up, the stories that my relatives shared with me were ones that that were rooted in that love and that neighbor to neighbor relationship of kindness and generosity that transcended uh, identity and was affirming of pluralism as however, I, you know, as I learned the history and as I also have, have, have begun to ask more questions and also to watch and see that the communal violence has also part of that story yeah. and that, that, Trying to reconcile all of that is challenging when you're of the region. I can only imagine for listeners who don't have a connection to the region uh, or may not follow the the stories, how confusing it can feel. And I guess that's my question to you as a reporter, Kalpana, trying to make sense of what's happening in India to American listeners and uh, readers, what do you find to be one of the biggest challenges in your position today? So uh, I'm glad you asked this question because, uh, you know, part of the reason I'm bringing up all these stories of how we've lived together is also to tell the American audience that people are not as divided as they may appear on a day-to-day basis. There's a lot of cultural interactions There's a lot of commerce together. There's a lot of still that generosity that's happening. It might go away and future generations may not even know what it was like. Like my parents in one room of our home where I grew up, they used to light a a dia, a lamp, to a Sufi saint who they believed still lived, you know, occupied that that part of the home. That was their strong Mm. belief. I grew up with that. But, you know, people are losing these stories. People are just forgetting how they used to live, you know. And American readers, the American audience, have not, a lot of them, may not have ever been to India, may not have ever seen. So what that land looks like, so that context is missing. They have no idea that if you go to any place in India, the mosque and the temples are right, you know, they may be like right side by side. Sure. 
in 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 Varanasi, which you know, in the Western media at least, it's projected as a as a Hindu city. It's a place with like eight different major faiths, whether it's Sikhism, whether it's Hinduism, Islam, it's Jainism, Buddhism, and you know, one of the temples that Modi's sort of done a whole makeover of, and there's a lot of you know now squabbles and fights with the Hindu nationalists step, stepping in. It's right next to one of the most historic mosques where people for generations have worshipped together, going to both these places. Even among Sikhs, we never saw the Sikhs as separate from Hindus. In one family, a family would say, we'll make this boy a Sikh and the other will be a Hindu. So there's been that kind of fluidity of religious practice that at least my generation is very well aware of. I worry, I worry, and that's the reason I bring up also this conversation whether the future generations will even know what this used to look like, especially mm. with all the revisionist history, you know, what is going on in the media and all the, the you know, the, the desire to remake India into a Hindu country. I don't even know what that means. I mean, our language itself, the food itself, Hindi today is a mix of Urdu, Persian, all kinds of languages. It just shows the culture, you know, what, what that land has absorbed and become rich through. As I'm listening to you, I'm also hearing you say there is a battle of this narrative yes. of who we who, who the country will be moving forward and a battle to protect the history of who we were. You referenced briefly a revision of school books and history. I've read some of those stories as well. And it is it does actually resonate for me as an American watching the debate in our schools over history books and the textbooks of how we tell our own history here in this country. This battle over the story of who we are and where we're going and the values is not isolated to the United States. Yeah, and but, you know, coming back to the original questions, it's Modi's founder media that's supporting him for whatever reasons, systematic reasons, systemic reason, reasons, whether revenue reasons or just people believing in that kind of nationalism. But... Um, I would find it impossible to be a reporter today. In fact, when I went to India recently and I was in a newsroom and I talked to these young kids um, getting into reporting and I asked them, you know, what motivates them? And it's still that passion for journalism. So that is good. They want to still find the story, but they have such a hard time with access, which I don't think I faced when I was doing reporting mm. in India. Because if you come from a media organization that is seen not to be supportive of Modi, no one will talk to you. And that makes your job so much harder to do. At least by no one, I mean, you know, officials and senior ranking people who, and you need comments from them. You know, you want to do a balanced, a, a good rounded story. No one will talk to them. That's what's just echoing through my head as I think about that and the implications as a reporter and having, uh, de we depend on sources. We depend on being able to cultivate relationships with people who recognize that the press and media is a mechanism for holding accountable our leaders for informing uh, citizens and for also ensuring that we have enough information to be able to have a debate and a discourse and wrestle with ideas. It's in so many ways um, essential to the health of, of our democracy. 
again, I keep going back to when I was reporting, but the fact is, and I talk to other journalists, friends of mine who are my generation, and they say, today we would be scared of, you know, telling the public that I'm a journalist because you just don't know how they might respond to you and whether you'll, they don't feel safe saying that. Now, what does that say? Hmm. I, I, I think that we need to have more conversations is what that says to me, Kalpana. <laughs> I think that we need to have more conversations and we need to not take lightly or take for granted the religious freedom and the freedom of the press that we enjoy here in the United States. That is what that tells me. Yeah, I was very shocked when I was watching all the television news when I, you know, while visiting India. I can't tell you how much. And it's painful because I love this profession. I believe in it. I do everything possible that can, you know, make us do a better job as journalists. And it's very disheartening to see what's happening in, you know, one of the countries which had all the freedom and I've experienced it. I've enjoyed it. I've worked with it. And, you know, I think I've reported good stories because I could have that freedom. You can't take that freedom for granted. It's going away. You can't take that freedom for granted. It's going away. And that feels like when I think about stories that present us with um, these these realities and these changes, it, it does make me ask the question, what should we be doing? You know, I think often about um, the reference that theologian Howard Thurman would make about what can I do in my three feet, in the three feet of space around me, you know, that liberation theology, this idea of we live in a world full of suffering. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be disempowered by hearing this. What can we do? And I'm just, as I listen to you, the questions that are going through my mind right now is religious minorities around the world uh, are struggling to be seen, for their stories to be heard. And in the reality of politics, it's very easy to bring people together when you find a community to divide and to, to call your enemy. It's a playbook. It's not unique to India. It is a an unfortunate universal um, playbook that we've seen unfold around the world. I deeply appreciate your willingness to come on this show and consistently talk with us and share not only what you are reporting and what you're seeing, but that value of history and your own experience uh, living in India and in the United States. And thank you. Thank you for your time. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you I, would want to leave listeners I, with? I just want to add one more thing, you know, what I see here in the Western media, and it's so important to be mindful of that. So we don't get, we don't start to r- report the story just the way the Hindu nationalists would like the story to be reported, to portray Hindi, India as a Hindu Rashtra, Hindu nation, or majority Hindu. I think we have to be very clear that that is the country that they are trying to create. Hindu by itself is an identity which is so complex. And, you know, it mm. was a result of colonialism that it got put into this one one common category. And that has been the project of Hindu nationalists, to, you know, get people to start seeing that they're culturally the same. Even today, if you go to India, how many people just say, I'm a Hindu? They'll say, I'm a Konkani, I'm a Marathi, I'm a Tamil, etc., etc. So their identities are very different. But, you know, this they're being tra- trained to see that they are one. So that's mm. one. And the other is that we have to be constantly mindful that whereas the Hindu nationalists will like, 
people to see stories reported on that division also see what is behind that politics i'll give you one example so a couple of years ago um the you know one of the state governments was going after slaughterhouses in in the state because a lot of those are run by muslims and that is true and the story was reported as such that you know they are trying to ban meat selling beef selling going after you know anybody trying to um you know kill a cow who's the biggest beef seller the beef exporter one india is the biggest beef exporter mm. and and the industry itself is led by a hindu or a jain so i think just being mindful of the politics that's going on here and how the story is being presented as and you know really what i'm saying is really unpacking the politics in that story is important and and interrogating i mean what i hear you saying is interrogate the story that you read that makes you ask even more questions yes yes and really get to the bottom of it so you're not putting out that line that they're trying to feed you in a way because it helps mm. to you know show these divisions project give a certain kind of projection i don't know if you if you understand what i mean what i hear you saying is that there is a diversity that is a reality in the country when you go there the narrative that you may be reading suggests that there is one dominant identity the reality that i'm hearing you say is it's more complicated than that yes. in fact it's incredibly complicated and nuanced and to better understand what the country and these stories are about requires you to ask questions and to dig a little deeper which is what reporters love to do <laughs> so thank you kalpana for thank you, your time and for sharing all of this it's always a pleasure to talk with you have a wonderful day you too i'm ambreen Always a pleasure talking to you. Kalpana Jain is a senior ethics and religion editor at the Conversation US. Links to her article can be found in this week's show notes. That's all for this week's show. If you're interested in learning more about our guest Kalpana Jain, head over to this episode's show notes at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can learn about us. Sign up for the newsletter, explore the archives, find our podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices. While you are subscribing to the podcast, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. I promise it helps others find us. A special thanks to this week's producer, Kevin McCarthy, and to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision. A thanks to Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger for this week's musical sounds. Inspired as a production of Interfaith Voices, we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe. And I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. I'm Ambreen Khan. <laughs>